Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 as we read the verses 8 through 11. Let us hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord bless and apply the reading and preaching of his holy word to our hearts. It was the year 154 AD, some 60 or so years after John wrote the book of Revelation. And an old man stood before a Roman judge. His name was Polycarp. He was the pastor of Smyrna and a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was accused of preaching the gospel. And the sentence for this was death. The judge in this case was willing, however, to be lenient. Renounce Christ, he said, and you will live. But Polycarp refused. And looking straight at the judge, the old man replied, These eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Upon hearing this, Polycarp was led out and was burned at the stake. We come in our study of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor to the letter to the church at Smyrna. This is the church that Polycarp pastored for many years before his death. Smyrna, known today as Izmir in modern-day Turkey, is 35 miles north of Ephesus in Asia Minor. It was a proud and beautiful city. In fact, its coins were inscribed with the words first of Asia in beauty and size. And in this city was a small Christian church. The church was probably established by the Apostle Paul on his way to Ephesus during his third missionary journey. Though it was very small, the church of Smyrna was also very strong. The Christians there were highly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when John was on the island of Patmos for his faith, it was struggling under persecution. Now this letter to the church at Smyrna is similar to all of the other letters. There's a salutation or a greeting from Christ, and that's followed by a word of commendation, a word of exhortation, and a word of promise. But there's one difference. In this particular letter, there is no word of rebuke. And that's not to suggest, of course, that this church was perfect or that there was no room for improvement. For there's always room for improvement, and that was the case also here in Smyrna. 
But there's a time and a place for everything. And when a church is suffering, as the church at Smyrna was, that's not the time to point out her failures and shortcomings. It's a time, rather, to encourage comfort and support. And that's exactly what our Lord does in this letter. With the help of the Lord, let's consider this letter under the theme, Christ's Letter to a Persecuted Church. We'll consider, first of all, the suffering he observes, and secondly, the comfort he provides. As I've already mentioned, the church at Smyrna was suffering under persecution. During this time, persecution was on the increase. The emperor of Rome, whose name was Domitian, demanded that the citizens of the Roman Empire worship him as a god. Now that's something, of course, that the Christians in Smyrna refused to do. They acknowledged only one Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. To acknowledge the emperor as Lord and to worship him as Lord would amount to a denial of their faith and a serious sin against God. And so they refused to do this. And as a result, they were persecuted. They were ostracized. Their material possessions were confiscated. And they were forbidden to trade in the marketplace. And that, in turn, reduced them to poverty. And a growing number of them were being imprisoned and even executed. And our Lord, who knows and sees all things, knew also this. And so he comes to them and he acknowledges, I know your works tribulation and poverty and then he adds this and i know the blasphemy of those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan now the word blasphemy here could perhaps be better translated as slander apparently the jews in smyrna and there was a sizable number of them were going about spreading lies about the Christians. And they were doing that in an effort to discredit them and to turn the general population and especially the governing authorities against them. Now why they did that, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it's not hard to guess. It's likely they did this because they regarded Christianity as a threat. They knew that many Jews from other areas had converted to Christianity. And maybe some of their own people had done so as well. They simply could not allow that to go unchecked. And so they they persuaded the authorities to move against them. And they accused them wrongly of being disloyal to the state. This was a common Jewish tactic. Several times in the book of Acts, we read of the Jews stirring up opposition against the apostles and the followers of Christ. And they did the same thing here in Smyrna. And our Lord was aware of this. He was aware of their slander. And he condemned them in the strongest possible terms. You notice what he says. First of all, he denies that they were Jews. He speaks of them as those who say they are Jews, but are not. Now to be sure, racially, ethnically, they were Jews. They were the physical descendants of of Abraham. But they were not Jews in the true sense of the word. And that's because they rejected Christ as the Messiah, which Abraham did not do. Secondly, he referred to them as a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue is the place where Jews outside of Jerusalem 
would come together, would meet every Sabbath day to hear the law read and explained and to worship God. But because they persecuted believers, Jesus says the Jews of Smyrna were a synagogue not of God, but rather of Satan. The Christians in Smyrna, therefore, were being persecuted. But this was only the beginning. For our Lord goes on to warn them in verse 10 that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, this is not meant to be taken literally, of course. The devil himself will not actually throw some of them into prison, but he would use others. He would use the Jews and the Romans to do that for him. And so it's as though he was doing it himself. Now, when this would take place, our Lord doesn't say. But the context suggests that that would happen fairly shortly, probably within the next few months. So why did our Lord tell them this? Well, it certainly wasn't to frighten them, but rather to prepare them. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. Rather, he wanted them to get ready. And we learn here that sometimes it pleases the Lord for his own reasons to cause his people to suffer persecution. And that shouldn't surprise us. The Lord predicted that that would happen already in the Garden of Eden. After man fell into sin, God came to men and promised to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And he said, furthermore, that the seed of the serpent would bruise or crush the heel of the seed of the woman. And by that he meant the seed of the serpent, which is the world, would inflict pain and suffering on the seed of the woman, which is the church. And that's still going on today, just as it was going on in the first century. According to Open Doors, a Christian organization that keeps track of persecution of Christians around the world, over 360 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith in one year alone. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And that's not only happening overseas in third world underdeveloped countries, it's happening increasingly in Europe and North America as well, which was once the cradle of Christianity. There are no laws discriminating against Christians, at least not yet. But the time may come. Already now, for all of our government's pious talk of creating an inclusive and affirming society, Christians are being excluded from almost every sphere of society, politics, education, and business. Our voice, our perspectives, our views are simply not welcomed anymore. Everyone else's voice, everyone else's perspectives and views are certainly welcome, especially if you're indigenous or homosexual or transgendered, but not ours. Even though this nation was founded by Christian people on the basis of Christian principles. One commentator writes this, and I quote, 
Those of us in the West must be prepared for the jarring truth that just as in Smyrna in the first century, those who oppose and reject Christianity are going to oppose and persecute us. Not only will they say we are wrong, they will say we are bigoted, dangerous, and evil. We will be slandered as anti-choice, anti-diversity, anti-gay, anti-inclusion, anti-intolerance. We can anticipate economic boycotts, governmental restrictions, and social ostracism. Eventually, more severe persecution and even imprisonment will likely be our experience. End quote. Now, thankfully, we're not there yet, but it will happen. And why is that? Why does the Lord cause his church periodically to suffer persecution? Well, there may be, there may be many reasons for this, but certainly one reason is to cause the church to spread and to grow. One of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Tertullian, once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And by that he meant that God uses the death of his people to draw others to Christ. He causes them to hear their testimony and to observe their unwillingness to compromise. He causes them to see, to witness the peace and the joy that they experience when they are made to suffer for Christ. And they are amazed at this. And they want to know more. And they want this for themselves. And in this way, they're drawn to the church. And they're drawn to Christ. And that may have been the reason why he caused the church at Smyrna to suffer as well. But there's another reason why God sometimes causes his people to suffer persecution. And it's mentioned here in our text. It is to try or to test their faith. That's exactly what Jesus says. After he tells them that some of them would be thrown into prison, he adds these words, that you may be tested. You see, the Lord knows that our faith is often weak and imperfect. And one of the ways that he strengthens and purifies our faith is through suffering, trial, and affliction, including persecution. You can think of a metalsmith. In order to separate the metal from the ore, the metalsmith has to heat up the ore to a very high temperature. And that causes the ore to melt and the metal to rise to the surface where it can be skimmed off and used. And the same is true for the church at Smyrna. The Lord caused them to suffer persecution in order to test, to try, to purify their faith. And the point is, persecution happens for a reason. The Lord uses it to advance his cause and his purposes. And since that is so, let us not fear when persecution comes. Rather, let us trust that our times and we ourselves are in God's hands, that he will never let us go. And Christ and his church will prevail in the end. And so our Lord observed the suffering of his people in Smyrna, and he still observes it today. 
Well, how did he respond to this? That brings us to our second point. Having observed the suffering of his people in Smyrna, our Lord proceeds to provide them with some much-needed comfort. And he does this in four ways. First of all, in what he reveals about himself. He declares, for example, that he is the first and the last. Now, that's a title that God uses of himself in Isaiah 44, verse 6, and Isaiah 48, verse 12. And by saying that he is the first and the last, our Lord is reminding us that he is the eternal God who is in control of all things and who does not change. One commentator says this, and I quote, Christ was before all worlds, and what he is today, he will be to the very end of time. That captures the meaning very well. What a great comfort that must have been to the suffering church at Smyrna. It was like Jesus was saying to them, in the midst of all of your tribulation, in the midst of all of your suffering, remember that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I do not change. And I am fully in control. And therefore, do not worry about what is happening to you. What is happening is fulfilling my purposes. It's all part of my sovereign plan. As one commentator writes, the city of Smyrna may claim to be the first in Asia, but it is Christ who is the first and the last. And he alone provides a superior foundation for security. You notice also that he declares that he is the one who was dead and came to life. Yes, Jesus had died after he was on the cross for some six hours. He gave up the ghost and he died. And he died the most humiliating, the most painful, and the most cursed death imaginable. But on the third day, he rose again, triumphant over sin and death and Satan. And now he lives forevermore, never to die again. Now that too must have been a great comfort for the believers at Smyrna. Like their Lord, they too may have to die, but they do not have to be afraid. For Christ has overcome death. And in him, death is swallowed up in victory. Although they may die through faith in him, they will live to all eternity. Secondly, he comforts the believers at Smyrna by putting limits on their suffering. He says here that they will suffer tribulation, but that they will only do so for ten days. Now, ten days is just shy of one and a half weeks. And as such, it presents, it represents rather, a limited period of time. Not a short period of time, but not long either. Now, that too must have been a great comfort to them. What Jesus was telling them was that there would be light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, they would have to suffer for a time. Yes, some of them would even be thrown into prison, and others may even be put to death. But the time of their suffering would not last forever. It would mercifully be cut short. Thirdly, our Lord comforts the believers at Smyrna by reminding them of how rich they are. You notice what he says in verse 9. After telling them that he knows their poverty, he quickly adds, but you are rich. And he's speaking here not in terms of material richness, but spiritual richness. They were rich spiritually. And isn't that true for every believer? We may not have much in terms of 
this world's goods. But every believer is hugely rich in the sight of God. In Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, believers are rich. And what are our riches? Oh, there are so many of them, aren't there? We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have peace with God. And we have the gift of everlasting life. And all of these are like so many jewels in a treasure chest, making the believer fabulously wealthy. It's like Jesus is saying to the believers at Smyrna, you have given up a lot for the sake of following me, at least in terms of this world's riches, but don't be discouraged. You're still rich, richer than anyone else on earth, for you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Fourthly, he comforts the believers at Smyrna by making comforting promises. He makes two such promises. The first is in verse 10. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now the city of Smyrna prided itself on faithfulness to Rome. And now Jesus says, I want you to be faithful to me, even unto death. And those who are faithful to me will receive a rich reward. They will receive the crown of life, which is simply another way of speaking about eternal life and heaven with God. And when Jesus speaks of a crown here, he's not referring to a crown that kings and queens might wear. He's referring to a laurel wreath that would be placed on the heads of the winners of athletic contests in those days, much like our medals today. There's something ironic about that. Smyrna's goddess Sibylle is pictured in coins with a crown patterned after a city battlement. The buildings on Smyrna's Mount Pagos were said to look like a crown. But over and against these claims, Jesus promises to give the true crown that is eternal life with God. And you notice two things about this crown. First of all, notice the suitableness of this crown. It's a crown. It's to compensate them for their poverty. It's a crown of life to compensate those who are faithful even unto death. And it's a sure reward. Jesus says, I will give you This reward is not just possible, it's guaranteed. He will give them this reward with his own hand. The second promise that the Lord makes here is in verse 11. He says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now here again, we have the word overcome. As we observed the last time, the word revelation, the word overcome rather, appears many times in the book of Revelation. It also appears in each of the seven letters. And it implies that in the Christian life there are many obstacles. And every one of them must be overcome, not in our own strength, for that's impossible, but in the strength that the Lord himself will provide. And now Jesus says the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Well, the second death is simply another name for hell. It's called death because existence in hell is like death. People in hell don't really live, at least not the way they were meant to live. They're alive, to be sure, they're conscious, but they don't really live. There's no enjoyment in hell. 
There's no constructive activity in hell. There are no friendships and relationships in hell. The damned in hell simply exist in a state of perpetual torment and grief and sorrow. It's called the second death to contrast it with the first death. Going to hell is like dying all over again. But there's a difference. The first death is natural. The second death is unnatural. The first death is physical. The second death is spiritual. The first death is temporary. The second death is eternal. And it goes without saying that the second death is the most terrifying experience imaginable. Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. But now Jesus comes to these poor suffering people at Smyrna. And he says those who overcome will not be hurt by this second death. In other words, they will never go there. Why will they never go there? Because Christ endured the torments of hell on their behalf. Not that he ever went to the physical place of hell. He did not do so. But he experienced the torment of hell on the cross. Especially during the three hours of darkness when he was cut off from his father. Because he did that, we who believe on him will never be hurt by the second death. Well, these are the promises that Christ makes to those who overcome. What a powerful incentive we have here to keep on persevering, to keep on running the race, to to overcome, to strive to overcome, despite the obstacles, yes, even despite impending persecution. For Jesus assures us that those who overcome will receive the crown of life and they will not be hurt ever by the second death. Oh, my friend, do you desire those promises for yourself? then you must repent of your sins and believe on his name. And you must overcome. Not in your own strength, because you can't do that in your own strength. What is our strength? It is nothing. But in the strength that the Lord himself will provide. Oh, will you do that? Our Lord ends this letter with these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we saw last time, he's pointing out That only those whose ears have been opened by the Holy Spirit will hear what he says and respond to it in faith. Oh, my friend, do you have such an ear? Do you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Also, to you today, amen. Dear friends, it's a great joy for us to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station If you were blessed by or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N. And that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Pronk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called Doctrines of Grace, We hope it may be a rich blessing to you. 
Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.